Actually, they have just preached my sermon not even knowing it. It's interesting how God aligns these kind of things. They, um, one of the things I appreciate, I just want to make a couple comments about what we just heard, is this is a vision of restoration. Joe as a volunteer stepped in thinking about how can he help bring restoration to the lives of our high school students? What can he do? And we just saw some of the fruits of that. They couldn't have done this on their own. And this, I, I want you to know, I say this because this is my vision for you at Wheaton Bible Church. This is my dream for our church. That all of you as lay people would understand that the moment you come to Jesus Christ, God calls you and gives you a calling, uh, maybe potentially over the years, several callings that are every bit as important as any pastors or any missionaries. It's calling to a particular career, a particular job, a particular community, a calling to invest in serving the broader community, serving the church, multiple callings. But God has called you, and it's the exact same thing as he does in the lives of pastors and missionaries. And what does he call us to do? He calls us to restore what sin has broken. He calls us to seek the flourishing of the people around us to seek their good, to lift up the gospel of God's grace in, in Jesus Christ. And what we have just seen is what it means in a small way to be ascending church. And imagine if this story is multiplied thousands and thousands of times. Now, when I conclude our services and I say, Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent, this is precisely what I mean. I'm, we're sent into the world to identify and to, see, to seek, identify, and meet needs. And may God bless us as a church as we do that. Now, having said that, we are in a series on 1 John. And to refresh your memory... I want to remind you that John, the Apostle John, author of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, wrote this little bitty book, which we find near the end of the New Testament, because false teachers had come into these churches. These churches are, were located in what is now modern-day Turkey, and they were teaching false doctrine. They were teaching that Jesus Christ isn't God and there's really no such thing as human sin. So Jesus says God didn't exist, sin didn't exist. What mattered is you needed this knowledge. And so they split the churches. And all sorts of people left with these false teachers. And that John gets at in chapter 2 and verse 19. But John writes this letter because the Christians that were remaining were wrestling with a lot of questions. And at the top of the list was a question that had different forms, but it basically went like this. If you can claim to know Christ and be baptized in Jesus Christ and then deny your faith, deny Christ, and leave the church, then how can any of us who remain know that we really are Christians? And John wrote this epistle to help us know that we can know we are Christians. And he did that by giving us three different ways we can know, or what commentators, scholars call three different tests. 
And I want to delineate these because today we're going to focus on the third test. Test number one, the first way we can know we are Christian is what is called the truth test or the doctrinal test. Now, we haven't got this far in our study, but turn to chapter 4 and verse 13. And we'll put it up on the screen. And John says, this is how we know. He wants us to know. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. You can know you're a Christian if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and God in the flesh. Now think about this because people today like to say, oh, I believe Jesus is good. I believe Jesus is an example. But I don't believe that Jesus is God the Son who on the cross appeased the wrath of God. People today like to say, uh, well, Jesus is a help, but the reality is there's many different ways to heaven and we're all on a different path whether you believe in Jesus or not. And John is saying, if you say that about Jesus, if you say that about what Jesus has done, then you don't really know God. You don't understand the truth about Jesus. It would be like someone coming to you, if you can imagine this, and saying, you know, I want to believe you're a terrible parent. Man, I want to believe you're just awful, you're mean, you swear at your kids, you're, you're violent, uh, and I just want to believe you're a crummy dad. And you look at this person, and you're thinking, where in the world this, did this come from? And you have the presence of mind to say, well, um, man, I want you to know my wife and my kids and the people around me uh, actually think, uh, while I'm not perfect, I'm a pretty good parent. And then uh, this person responds by saying, well, that doesn't matter because I want to believe you're a terrible parent. John is saying, he is telling us, if you think about Jesus any way you want to think, regardless of the facts, regardless of what the scriptures teach, then that means you may think you know God, but you don't. It's a truth test. It's why God has given us his word. Now, the second test is what we call the obedience test. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. So turn to chapter 3, go back to chapter and verse 10. And John writes, this is how we know. Now, again, he wants us to know that we know. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right, does not obey, is not obedient, is not God's child. So let's say you say, and I'm speaking hypothetically, you know someone but you have no contact with them, no contact with them. As a matter of fact, you do everything you can to neglect them, and given the opportunity, you will criticize them. You will do everything you can to dishonor this person that you claim to know personally. Uh, it, it, it delights you to break their heart. 
Uh, you are you stand for you stand against everything that person you claim to know stands for. Do you really know that person? No. <laughs> you don't really know that person. Now John is saying in verse ten and elsewhere. Oh, let me say what he's not saying. He's not saying Christians never sin. He addresses that in chapter 1 and verse 8. Rather, what he is saying is if you really know Jesus Christ, one of the ways you will know you know that over the course of your life, you will basically, your disposition is attempt to honor and obey God, to please God, not to dishonor him. And we do this not to earn God's favor, and this is the distinctive of Christianity when it comes to our morals, when it comes to our obedience. We do this not to earn God's favor, but because we know we have already received God's favor in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. So John is saying in this obedience test, you will know you know God. Not if you obey perfectly, none of us can do that. But if there is progress, if there is a direction, if it matters to you, instead of being indifferent to what God says. Now that brings us to the third test, the final test. This is a test I want to unpack this morning. It's what's called the love test. And this is the last part of verse 10, and then it leaks into the passage we want to address today, beginning in verse 11. So look at the final clause in verse 10. Nor is anyone a child of God who does not love their brother and sister. And then John says this, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own, that is Cain's own actions were evil and his brother's, Abel's, were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you, like Cain hated Abel for being righteous. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, let me just make a comment. John is not saying it is impossible to be, to have committed murder or even multiple murders and then come to Christ. That's not what he is saying. What John is saying is if you know Christ, your disposition is not to be a murderer. It's not who you are. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we persuade our hearts in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts he, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command. This is what pleases him, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. 
as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. In this context, the the spirit is working in our lives to produce both belief and obedience and love for others. So what I want to do is I want to unpack this, as I said, by looking at what Christianity teaches about love. And I want to address three subjects here. The importance of love, the nature of love, and then the source of love or the power for love. And let's begin at the beginning, go back to verse 11. Let me ask you a question. Why does John say love is the message and the message is love in the context? Why does he say love is a message you've heard from the beginning? From the beginning. Because John wants us to understand that Christianity from its very first moments so has emphasized love that the love of Christians in John's day is beginning to impact the world and eventually will go on in the centuries that follow John to capture the imagination of the world, and it's the love of the Christians that will move Christianity from a small, isolated, backwater sect to become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. It wasn't the brilliance of Christians, it was the love of the Christians. The world around us that we often say doesn't care how much we know, but boy, it it really wants to know how much we care. And John has said this has been the way We as Christians have lived and operated from the very first moment. So, for example, Jesus in the Gospels, and this is what John is referring to here in chapter 3, says, a new command I give you. Now, he doesn't say a suggestion. It's not an option. It's a command, a new command I give you, that you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love each other, love one another. And that was Jesus' teaching ministry. Love, love, love. And then we come to the book of Acts, and what do we discover? In the brand new early church that starts in Jerusalem and builds and moves and expands, well, we discover throughout the book of Acts an incredible love Christians have for Christians, Christians have for the world. So they're generous, they're sharing their possessions, they're praying for each other, they're encouraging each other, they're taking each other in. Uh, They're incredibly compassionate. And people are beginning to notice. And I think, I happen to think one of the most vivid illustrations of this love, this compassion, is found in Acts chapter 13, and verse 1. So we'll get that up on the screen for you. And let's look at this. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. Now the church at Antioch, so the church has moved from Jerusalem to Samaria now to Antioch, one of the larger cities in the Mediterranean basin, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, and you and I read this and think, no big deal, and I want to say, no, this is what, what we just read is a big deal, because this is the description of the leaders of the church in Antioch. And Barnabas was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. Simeon 
was a black African. Lucius was a Libyan. Manian uh, was a, an aristocrat, uh, probably raised in royalty, probably from a royal family. Paul, Paul was a Pharisee. These church leaders could not have been more ethnically, racially diverse. It is why the book of Acts tells us that it was in Antioch, where these were the leaders, where this was the nature of the church, that the followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians. Why? Because they didn't have another word. They were no longer Jews. They were from here. They were from there. They looked very different from one another. What are we going to call them? They called them Christ followers, Christians. The love of the Christians from the beginning shattered every known racial, ethnic, economic, social, educational background barrier. It was the inclusivity of the church, of the Christians, that was something the world had never seen. Because the world had always been, still tends to be divided according to tribes. Now, I want to suggest to you that's one of the most vivid illustrations of the love of the church, the power of Jesus Christ, and all of the book of Acts. The diversity, the ethnic diversity of the church. Now, let's go back to John, and let's take this a step further and ask the question, okay, John, why does this love matter so much? Why is it so important? That's what we're talking about. So, what has John just said? He has just said in verse 11, this love matters so much because it's who we are. It's who we've been from the beginning. And so, a lack of love is a functional lack of our identity. It's a denial of one of our core great strengths. And then he get, in verse 14, he gives us a second reason love matters because in verse 14, he tells us it's one of the tests whether or not we really know God. If you know God, you will love. So he says in verse 14, we know because we love each other. Now, I was going to tell this story anyway because I just love it. But I figure, in, the, in the goodness of God, I figured a way to make it tethered to this passage. And so the, here, here's, here's what I want to say. Two weeks ago, our youngest child, our, our, our son, got engaged. Pretty cool. He got engaged to Taylor in Sumter, South Carolina. Now, we have a son-in-law that's Samoan, we have a daughter-in-law that's Korean, and now we will have another daughter-in-law that is Southern. <laughs> Southern, how y'all doing? <laughs> Miss Rhonda. And so, a, a bunch of our family flew down to Sumter, South Carolina for the after-the-engagement party. And Taylor's family was there. We were at Taylor's parents' house. And it seemed like there were about a hundred Clemson graduates. And, you know, these times are just um, so wonderful for us as families. And so they got engaged. And they got engaged in some a grove of woods where Taylor's father uh, pastors a church. And the church has this grove of woods. And then they come back. And they come to our house, and, and I notice 
As Taylor walks in and wherever Taylor's going, she's like this. Now, this is a confession. It has nothing to do with the story. But in the last two services, because I'm a, a typical male who's not very intelligent, I went like this. <laughs> and, and I couldn't understand why people didn't get it. So Taylor's walking around like this. This is the video that's going to go out in this service. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then I noticed when we're taking pictures, uh, Taylor's like this. <laughs> and, you know, uh, why? Why does a young woman who's just gotten engaged do this, walk around like this? And the answer is she's declaring she's in love or she's loved that he's committed to me. That this is official, this is going somewhere. I want to say to you, this is what it means, according to John, to be a Christian. It means we go into the world with our heads held high, our hearts overflowing with joy, because we know we are loved. We know God is committed to us. We know our relationship with Him is going somewhere. We know it's official. And so who are we as we move into the world, as we connect with other believers? We are people that love because we know we are loved. And it just radiates like Taylor's face radiated. And you know what? It doesn't matter one's skin color, one's background, where somebody... um, operates, what they've done, none of that matters. It doesn't even matter whether we like other, these other people. I mean, for all we know, they could be Packer fans, right? We love because we are loved. And frankly, it's so significant, it's one of the ways you can know whether or not you really are a Christian. Now, let me address one thing that isn't obvious, but it's right under the surface, and you will see that as I mention it. What does this mean? Well, it means this, this command, this history of love, it means that Christianity never ever from the first moments entertains the notion of an isolated, disconnected Christian who merely attends a worship service occasionally. Or attends a cat class occasionally, or occasionally downloads a podcast. Rather, to love like this, this radical, beautiful love that captured the imagination of the world, means that to be a Christian, we are connected in community. It means we are known and we know other believers. It means we have a body, we belong to a small group, a church. And there's mutual caring and sharing that means that we serve. You see, you simply can't love unless you're connected, right? You cannot love unless you're connected. Another way to say this, and actually, Lana, I got this from your book. You and I have talked about this. You will never satisfy your deepest longing to love and to be loved. You will never satisfy that. And we all have this longing to love and to be loved if you live an isolated life. And so when John, I want you to understand, when John talks about this wonderful privilege of loving because we are loved, he's assuming we're connected. 
He's assuming church matters, relationships matters. Because what does he say in verse 11? He says, this is a message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should love one another. Your love, your commitment to community, your engagement uh, uh, with other believers, your engagement with your church is one of the ways you can know that you know Christ. Now let me go on to the second. Let's move from the importance of love to the nature of love and what John has to say about the nature of love here in this love test. And let's jump in at verse 12, because here in verse 12, for a couple verses, we see what love is not. Love is not, according to verse 12, Cain. It's not following Cain. So what John means is love is not sustained anger toward a family member. I hate my dad. I'll never talk to him again. It's not sustained anger toward anyone, nor is it jealousy or envy or, or, or thinking about how we can hurt someone or strike back or, as we see here, do evil. In other words, what John is saying, love doesn't send nasty emails. Post, mean-spirited posts. Love doesn't rage. Love doesn't mock. And I say all this because Jesus bundles all of these up in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells us that anger is a form of murder because what we see here in the life of Cain and the, and the jealousy and the envy that led him to murder is all of that are forms of murder, your envy, your hate, your racism. That's what love isn't. So what is love? Let's bump to verse 16. And here we have just an absolutely brilliant section in the Word of God. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? How can it? Now, there are two parts here, or two parts I want to address. The first is verse 16. The second is verse 17. Because in verse 16, we have a, a description or a definition of love. And then in verse 17, we have one of the most important implications of love in all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. So let's start with verse 16. According to verse 16, love is what? What, is, what does Christianity teach about love? Christianity teaches that love isn't a feeling. I love my summers. I love, you know, the ocean. Or some of you may think, and I can't wait for winter. I love winter. And I'm going to tell you, we're praying against you. And all those are legitimate expressions. That's not my point. I, I mean, I love the ocean as well. Um, but I'm going to pray against you if you love winter. But what John is saying is Christianity isn't a feeling. It's not a feeling. What is it? It's sacrificial action. Uh, think of a mother with a newborn. Think of a caregiver. Think, or, think of a teacher with a student that's struggling because that student comes from a family that's struggling. Or a soldier. 
or a policeman that rushes into a situation. Jesus, John tells us, Jesus' love was sacrificial action. It's not merely laying down prayer requests, it's laying down your life. Now, I'm learning this the hard way as my kids move into adulthood. Because one of the things I'm discovering with our, our, our kids, and to be honest, it's a little painful, is the older they get and the, and the more they're increasingly on their own and their own families and their own jobs, the, uh, they don't want my advice as much as they want my support. And it's painful because I think they have forgotten who I am. That I'm an advice giver. But what they really want is not to process everything. None of us have time for that. But they want Rhonda and me to come alongside them and support them and love them and be compassionate towards them and to engage in sacrificial action for them. They want us to sacrifice in little ways, medium-sized ways, big ways. And that's all normal and, and it's necessary. Love isn't a feeling. You don't have to like the person. Love is sacrificial action. It's 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, which builds on the gospel of John 3.16. Now, I want to say three things quickly about verse 16 because I don't want you to miss them before I move on to verse 17. First, note the gospel sequence in verse 16. John doesn't call us to love without first rooting it in Christ's love. This is why our first value here at Wheaton Bible Church is our first value. The gospel isn't the starting line, it's the whole race. The gospel isn't just for non-Christians, it's for uh, each and every one of us as Christians each and every day of our lives. That we live in light of the wonder of our union in Christ, what the gospel has done for us. What is John doing here by talking about Jesus is saying you and I don't have the ability to conjure up love on our own. There's going to be rubs, there's going to be irritations. But love will become the melody of our lives to the extent we live in light of the wonder and the majesty and the glory of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And it's rooted in God's love. Second, Jesus in the Gospels famously says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he or she must deny themselves. Deny themselves. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying death is the portal to life. Self-denial is the portal to life. You denying, you, you denying yourself so you can service and minister to others. Now here John is saying the same thing a little differently because John is saying in verse 16, death, self-denial, is the portal to love. Jesus says the portal to life. John says portal to love. You cannot love unless you deny yourself, unless you deny, die yourself. That's why God gives us grace. And that grace, there's a sense in which God's grace seeks to kill us. And by that I mean so we will... Uh, uh, 
not be full of ourselves so we will engage in self-denial. Third, and some of you already been thinking this, and I know this, and I apologize for taking a minute to get to this, but at the end of verse 16, we realize here in this context, John is talking about our love within the body of Christ, the love between Christians. But I want to remind you that in many other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, say like Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus forcefully, strongly says if we only sacrifice for people who are like us, for our good friends, and we don't cross racial uh, or, or, or difficult barriers and boundaries. If we don't take risks, then the world may not ever notice our love because it's just a tribal thing and we then become a club or a country club. So according to, to, to put that together, according to John, we must, we must, we must be connected to the church. We must be connected to other believers and love them. But according to the rest of the New Testament, man, we have this opportunity and we must, we must love the communities around us and the people that we work with and the people in our extended families who are sometimes the most difficult for us to get along with. Okay, that's verse 16. Now I want to come to this implication. Obviously, it's a significant implication because it's right on the heels uh, of verse 16, and we find it in verse 17. And John says this sacrificial love that's the distinctive of Christianity must, must lead you to focus on the poor, the needy, the disadvantaged. Earlier this week, Rhonda and I were at a dinner where after the dinner, Rich Stearns, a president of World Vision, spoke. And World Vision is one of the largest, maybe the largest, of all the Christian relief and development organizations in the world. Their five-year, ten-year plan, we weren't really sure, is to raise a billion dollars to meet some of the greatest needs around the world, a billion dollars. Man, they're all in. And as he was speaking, he told us a really cool story that I will not forget. He said, last Sunday, I was in a capital city of a country in the Middle East. And that city has been devastated by strife and war and bombings. And, and that's been going on for years and years in that city. And he said, uh, as I was there with my team, uh, we went to church, and as we were standing outside the church, we saw something we never thought possible. We saw hundreds of Muslims streaming into this church. Muslims coming to this church. And he said, why? He said, because that particular church decided not to leave, decided not to flee, but to endure the risks. And over the years, this church has built an incredible reputation because what does it do? It meets the most basic fundamental of human needs. And so it provides food and diapers and clothes and, and shelter and more. And then Rich Stern said something that I thought was profound. And I want you to take with you, I want you to think about this. 
He said it's the great commandment, Jesus' commandment to love that we, um, that we read. It's the great commandment that catalyzes the great commission. It gives up life. In other words, what he was saying is our love for other people, especially the most needy among us, opens doors. It creates entry points where we, uh, where we can share the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Because we're present. We haven't left. Because we're seeking to meet basic, primary, fundamental needs and as a result, in that particular church, hundreds of Muslims have come to Christ. This is a central mission of the church. What I mean by that is I mean verse 16 and verse 17. And by the way, it's one of our 12 foundational values. I talked about our first value, uh, that the gospel isn't just a starting line, it's a whole race. Now look at this, let's put this on the screen. Look at our, our last of our 12 values. We state it this way, we will seek and care for. Now notice the language there. We are very intentional about that. We're not waiting for needs to walk in the door. We're seeking needs. And we will care for the under-resourced and the vulnerable. Now for those of you that are above 50, I want you to hear me. This is not a social gospel, but what it does mean is that the gospel has social implications. And those of us in the generations behind us understand this. They get this as Christians. And so this is why collectively we are so committed, as you've heard, to West Chicago and making the, as much of a difference as possible in that community. It's why we care deeply about immigrants and refugees. It's why we here at Wheaton Bible Church, do you know this? We have a class on Sundays taught in Arabic. It's why we provide pro bono uh, legal consultation on Saturdays. It's why we pack and distribute food. It's why we do all the things we uh, do that you saw represented here Last Sunday, in the last week of Missions Fest, all the different agencies we have the privilege of partnering with. Now, what does this mean as an individual level? It's a story of Joe and his movement into Pointe. It's a couple, an older couple in our church that came up to me last Sunday and said, Rob, you can't believe this, you can't believe this. Uh, we, were, we were just at a store, and we've been going to the store, and we've been getting to know the clerk in the store, and we discovered that she's homeless. We discovered she sleeps under a bridge in West Chicago. And, and what are we going to do? And what I was watching happening in this older couple is that that woman's problem had suddenly become their problem. Are other people's problems your problems? Do you bear their burdens? Do you seek the meet, to meet the needs of brothers and sisters and others in our community who ha have deep ongoing issues, whether it's a crisis or it's more systemic? Well, one of the ways Rhonda and I have attempted to get at this over the years 
is we have had a stream of people that have lived in our home for extended periods of time. Now, I wish I could tell you that always worked out well. But I can tell you it was always right. It was always the right thing to do. Now, when you put verse 16 and verse 17 together, what we discover is that love demands both mercy and justice. Mercy is compassion toward the undeserving. Uh, Justice is giving people their due. So uh, we rescue women from sex trafficking, from uh, child slavery. We seek to give people their due. And what is the heart of Christian love? It's sacrificial love. What does that mean? It means you and I disadvantage ourselves to advantage others. You disadvantage yourself to advantage another. It has wheels. It has legs. It's not just words. Now, this brings me to the end, and I, I know I'm over, and I'll finish with this, and I'll be, try to be really brief. What is the source? What is the activating power for this radical kind of love? Well, I believe the answer is found in verses 19 beginning in verse 19 through most of the verses in this last paragraph. But I want to tell you that's a complicated section. And commentators and scholars are all over the place on what is actually being said here. So what I want to do is I want to tell you how I see it, and and my position is informed by the context, the prior context. Seeing needs addressing them, the context of love. So I believe what's going on beginning in verse 19 is that John is aware that there are needs all around us and those needs can be overwhelming. And sometimes because of that, what's going to happen to you as a believer is your heart is going to condemn you. This is verse 20. And your heart is going to say to you, you have aging parents, you need to be there more, you need to be in the hospital more. You have these neighbors, you don't even hardly know them. Or or what about what's going on on the other side of town? Or what's happening in in your country? And and you should love more and you're feeling condemned. And and your heart is uh, telling you, you know, you're not generous. You do a little here, but you do uh, uh, only do a little here. And so your heart is condemning you. And what's your heart saying to you? Your heart is fundamentally saying to you, you know, you're really not a good Christian. And that's a condemnation John is talking about here. And it's a context, it's in the context of meeting the needs of people uh, that are often different than us. And I want to tell you what's going on. At that moment, you're just like Oscar Schindler in the epic movie Schindler's List, who at the end of the movie falls to his knees after all sorts of months and years of rescuing Jews. And he says, I could have done more. I could have sold my watch or uh, a car or, or, or this or that. I could have rescued more Jews from the, from the Nazis. And what is going on with Oscar at that moment? His heart is condemning him. And if you care about the world and you wouldn't be here if you didn't, and if you care about the church and you wouldn't be here if you didn't, there will be times when your heart will condemn you. You haven't done enough. So what are we to do? I believe the answer is found in verse 20. Uh, you say to your heart, yes, you're right. I could have done more. 
you say to your heart or you say to Satan, but I want you to understand that God is greater than my heart. God is greater than my feelings of being worthless and not good enough. God is greater than my failure because God is infinite in his love, infinite in his mercy, infinite in his sovereignty, and I am not worthless. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say to you, my heart, I'm going to say to you, Satan, though you are trying to condemn me, Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you're going to transcend the feelings of your heart because not only love is greater than feelings, God is greater than your feelings. And there is no, there is no, there is never any condemnation once we are in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see this grace that reforms and restores? Would you help us to enter into this stream and be agents of reformation, agents of restoration? Would you help Wheaton Bible Church to be a restoring, reforming, loving, compassionate church? And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.